Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The answer is fundamentally because it revolves around mitochondria. And virtually all of the energy produced by virtually all of the trillions of cells of your body, from your skin cells to your muscle cells to your brain cells to your liver cells to your heart cells, pretty much everything, virtually all of that energy comes from mitochondria. And those cells, and therefore those organs, do their job better when the mitochondria are producing more energy. Yeah. So whether it's a brain cell or a heart cell or a thyroid gland cell or testicular cells that are producing sperm and testosterone, they all work yep. better when the mitochondria are working better to supply more energy to the cell. More energy to the cell means the functions of that cell get done better. The seven chocolates swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head for thousands of years this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple what are the functions of these energy centers and could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose welcome to my seven chakras and now your host Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, my7chakras.com, the show where we help you calm your mind, relax your nervous system, and experience deep states of bliss. In today's episode, I hope to explore some of my favorite topics, such as the mitochondria and the role that it plays in our life, biohacks and practices that can help boost your energy and vitality, and things that you can do today to lead a more fulfilled, electric, and fatigue-free life. 
right? So if that sounds interesting and if you're excited to listen to this particular episode, then make sure that you hit the subscribe button and hit follow, especially if you're on Spotify, because that does something to the algorithm and lets everybody know that you are enjoying this show. Once again, hit subscribe, hit follow, and make sure that you tell at least one person, maybe your family or your friend, about this episode that we're going to start right now. With that being said, let's bring on our special guest for today, Ari Witten. Ari is the founder of the Energy Blueprint. He is an energy and fatigue specialist who focuses on taking an evidence-based approach to energy enhancement, nutrition, exercise, natural health expert, and the number one best-selling author. He's been studying nutrition and holistic health for more than two decades and has a Bachelor of Science from San Diego State University in kinesiology. He also has a background in exercise, physiology, and fitness, and he holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist. And he is a tireless researcher who has obsessively devoted the last 20 years of his life to the pursuit of being on the cutting edge of the science on health and energy enhancement. So... Really excited to have you on, Ari. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you on our show as well. Um, and so I personally have so many different questions and topics and themes that I'm hoping to explore on our show today. But perhaps if we can get started from the beginning, could you tell us where were you born and brought up and what was your childhood like? Oh, my childhood. Um, oh, I don't think I've ever been asked that on a podcast before. You go deep, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, are we going to do a psychotherapy? What's your what's your your, your uh, school of, of psychotherapeutic <laughs> method? Um, my childhood was in San Diego, uh, California, mm -hmm. and um, fairly typical sort of middle class upbringing. And uh, I don't know how, how deep you want to go. I don't want to say a whole bunch of things that are not very relevant, but. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, from a very young age, from about 12 years old, I developed a passion for, um, for human health. And at that time, it was more in the realm of body composition, fitness, building muscle, losing fat, optimizing athletic performance, because I was an athlete, I was an aspiring bodybuilder. That was my world, you know, and, and that was my world for over a decade. And then in my mid 20s, I got sick with uh, mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus, and that it was it was a severe sickness for about six weeks. Um, I lost about forty pounds of muscle mass. My hair was falling out. I had giant balls of pus in the back of my throat that prevented me from eating food. So I was living off broth, and. Uh, and then in the aftermath, that was actually the worst part is for about a year after that, I was left with severe chronic fatigue and that really rocked my world. And it made me realize that this thing that I had always had and taken for granted my whole life of energy was really central to a good life because I watched as my physical energy levels and mental energy levels deteriorated so too did everything in my life from my relationships with friends, my relationship with my girlfriend, my, I was in school and I had a job at the time. I wasn't able to do my work in school. I wasn't able to do my job. And really my life just kind of fell apart as a result of not having the energy 
to do any of those things, let alone think about, you know, pursuing my hopes and dreams in, in life. And that was really the catalyst for me to develop a, a, an interest, what became an obsession uh, with human energy enhancement, which is digging into the science of that topic, building out the science of that topic, because I would argue that it's been something that's been very poorly, little understood by both conventional and alternative and functional medicine circles, um, really up until now. Um, so building out that science, figuring out the physiology of what really controls human energy levels has been my passion for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And as you look back, um, you said that you you got the Epstein Barr virus. Is that how it started? How does one typically you know, how do, in most cases maybe or in some cases how does somebody contract that virus? What what happens? Okay, so uh, this might be a, a little bit of a digression. I won't go too detailed here, but um, yeah, it's an interesting virus in the sense that. Uh, actually, about 90% of the population, I think it's like 95% of the population will get that virus before the age of 40. Okay. Most people, almost everybody, gets it as a child. And when you get Epstein-Barr virus as a child, it actually manifests as a common cold. Nothing significant. Okay. And nobody would even get tested or checked for Epstein-Barr virus. It's just, a, you know, a, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old kid with a common cold. It's one of really dozens or maybe hundreds of viruses that cause the common cold. However, it's unique in the sense that uh, when you get it as a young adult, starting maybe at the age of, I don't know, 16, 18 or older, if those people get exposed to it. And if they're in an immunosuppressed state, and I was at the time, I was sleep deprived and working a very intense manual labor job and sleeping in a room. Uh, I was in a dormitory with 200 other kids from all over the world in their 20s, and we were partying our faces off, sleeping almost nothing. I was sleeping in a moldy room, and, you know, the con and then I got exposed to the virus. You have an immunosuppressed person uh, who's getting exposed to that virus as an adult, it manifests as mononucleosis, what we call mononucleosis in the United States, and what they call in many other countries either glandular fever or the kissing disease. And the kissing disease actually tells you how you mostly get exposed to it. M most people get exposed to it by sharing saliva. So it could be from actual kissing or from, uh, in my case, I think it was due to sharing a water bottle with several other guys during a soccer game. Mm. Um, so, uh, and I had a girlfriend at the time I, who I was kissing, so I guess it's, it's uh, possible I got it from her, but you know, she, she didn't have it actively, who knows? And then there's some question of whether somebody who's been exposed, it stays latent in your system, maybe they can still transmit it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's the deal. Basically common cold as a child, almost everybody gets it usually a common cold for a child and then a more severe disease, glandular fever, mononucleosis when you get it as an adult. Got it. So when you, um, had this, obviously your energy levels went down, you had fever as well. What was the initial diagnosis? What did you do? Did you go to the traditional doctor at that point to find out why you were having these low levels of energy and, and what happened then? Yeah, well, actually, they 
initially diagnosed me as having strep throat when I went to the conventional doctor and they prescribed me a 10 day course of penicillin, which didn't help at all. And in fact, made me worse. (laughs) Then I went back and I, they sent me to another doctor and another doctor and another doctor. Nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. Um, they still continued to think strep throat and, but the penicillin didn't work. So nobody really knew. Then I went to one specialist who was an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he's the one who suspected mononucleosis and tested me for it. And then uh, the blood titers came back for that, the, the IgG blood titers and antibody levels of, of exposure that mark exposure to that virus. And they were absolutely off the charts. Um, IgM and IgG were both off the charts high. Um, I mean, just, just sky high levels of those. So it was very clear that uh, Epstein-Barr virus was very active in my system. Um, But by that time, it was about six weeks later. So I was already suffering, you know, for about six weeks and pretty much over the acute illness at that time before the diagnosis even came in. But um, irrespective of that, they don't even have anything to offer people with Epstein-Barr virus. So there's nothing in their tool belt within conventional medicine. They'll tell you to rest and, you know, eat well and um, you know, take some vitamin C. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a doctor that at least tells you that. So for somebody who has uh, the Epstein-Barr virus, uh, what was your typical day like? Like, I think everyone relates to, you know, low energy levels or in your case, chronic low energy levels differently. So could you describe what, a, what an average day was at this point? Um, you said six weeks in, right? Yeah. So six weeks of the acute illness, and and then I had almost a year of of severe chronic fatigue after that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know more what my life was like during the acute illness, or? Uh, yeah, I, I would say during the acute illness phase, and then I would be curious to find out um, since you know the traditional doctors, especially the ENT, there was no solution at that point. You know, what route did you go down? What was your thought process like? And then what did you find out? Something along those lines. <laughs> okay. So, well, I guess the most interesting aspect of that, I mean, because it, it, on the one hand, if I give you a short answer, it's not very interesting. It's me laying in bed a lot, drinking broth and not doing much else. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the, the longer answer was that there, are, there were many interesting psychological dynamics at play during that time. Okay. Um, I was living on a kibbutz, a communal farm in Israel at the time, and I was working a very hard manual labor job. Um, I was working what was considered the hardest physical job on the, on the farm. Um, and the guys that I was working with were real badasses. I mean, really tough dudes. Most of them were former uh, special forces and naval commandos had been in actual wars, had seen their buddies die, had probably killed people. Um, I mean, really hard, hard men. And there I was with, you know, and I had earned their respect, but um, there I was now with a sickness that's like, oh, he's he's got a cold, right? Um, mm. what's, what's the big deal? But then I'm out not just one week, not just two weeks, but weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And at that point, there's there, a dynamic emerged where those guys were all thinking like, what, what's the deal with this guy? Is he some kind of sissy or something? Like he can't, he can't do his mm-hmm. job. So 
then I had, and then the the people who were running the you know this this sort of operation were also questioning you know sort of the legitimacy of my illness you know because most people don't have a six weeks long you know respiratory tract or throat infection right you have a a week or two maybe um, yeah. and usually only a few days maybe or a week where you can't work so because of that and because I knew that that was going on. I was trying to force myself to work, uh, you know, you know, starting maybe three, four weeks in, um, which probably made me much, much worse than if I had just been resting. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that's also an interesting thing. And then I had a girlfriend at the time and she was also wondering what was going on with me. There was a lot of people chirping of other kids, you know, what's his deal. He's, He's not able to do his job for, you know, we're all working. Why isn't he working? Um, and so I felt a lot of, and that was all before the diagnosis came in before, you know, it was like six weeks into it that I actually got the Epstein-Barr virus diagnosis. So it, it, it was one thing just dealing with the illness itself and the symptoms that it was causing for me. You know, again, I had two giant balls of pus at the back of my throat, and it was incredibly painful to even attempt to eat food. So, you know, th that was making me severely fatigued. I was living off broth, which is totally inadequate nutrition. And, and then to sort of add insult to injury, I can't just rest in peace and allow my body to recover. Now I'm forcing, I I'm dealing with all these people judging me. I'm dealing with um, the pressure to go back to work and do a very difficult physical labor job when I have no energy uh, to do it. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a number of sort of interesting dynamics around that, that, that made it challenging. Mm -hmm. and, and so at what point, um, do you feel that there was some kind of correct, uh, diagnosis or you were beginning to go down the right route of treating your condition? Um, you know, who ended up uh, helping you? Nobody. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, so this gets into a bit of a longer discussion, but conventional doctors, as I said, have had really nothing to offer. Um, mm -hmm. and they also had nothing to offer when I was dealing with chronic fatigue for nearly a year after it, they don't have any, okay. and we can talk specifics about what they do offer people with chronic fatigue, if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, and then the alternative world basically was focused on the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue. Um, I was tested and for my cortisol levels, my cortisol levels came back perfectly normal. They still tried to diagnose me with adrenal fatigue and, and treat me for that. Didn't do much. Um, and that actually was part of the catalyst that led to me developing more of an interest in, in the science around energy enhancement was actually realizing that nobody within conventional medicine or natural health, functional medicine, uh, um, you know, sort of the alternative medicine and, and wellness community, none of them understood what was going on with chronic fatigue either. So, no. you know, it was kind of through all of that realization of nobody helping me that actually led me to decide, well, I want to be the guy who builds out our real scientific understanding of what controls and regulates human energy levels. Mm -hmm. And so, like you pointed out, what do you feel that the traditional establishment gets wrong about treating chronic fatigue? So there was a, 
there was a paper that was put out several years ago that it was published in the American Journal of Family Physicians. And it was essentially a compilation of the scientific literature that was intended for physicians as a set of evidence-based guidelines for how they should treat their patients with chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. The paper, if anybody wants to look it up, if they doubt what I'm about to tell them, and I might be skeptical of what I'm about to tell you as well if I was just hearing it, if I didn't see it with my own eyes. But the right. paper, paper is called Fatigue and Overview. So if you want to look it up, American Journal Family Physician. Um, and this is intended to be their evidence-based guidelines for treating patients with chronic fatigue. They say a couple of interesting things in this paper. First, they say the recommended testing is standard blood testing, unless there is some indication of uh, a need to do some other specialized tests. So for example, if you suspect the patient may have tuberculosis, you run a tuberculosis test, for example. Um, but otherwise, it's standard blood testing. And they literally go on to say these exact numbers. They say 95% of tests on people with chronic fatigue show no abnormality that indicates a cause of their chronic fatigue. 95%, 95 out of 100 people with chronic fatigue who go to see a doctor get tested and have perfectly normal blood labs that are not that that don't show any evidence or point to any particular cause. The other 5% might be something like anemia or hypothyroidism or diabetes or something like that. Right. But most people have nothing readily identifiable there. Um, the other interesting thing, as far as what they actually offer their patients with chronic fatigue, is four treatments. One is a recommendation to walk for half an hour a day. Another mm -hmm. is cognitive behavioral therapy. The other one is antidepressant drugs. And the other one is stimulant drugs as needed. That's mm. it. That's all they have to offer. And it is remarkable that um, nutrition isn't even mentioned in their supposed mm -hmm. evidence-based guidelines. Uh, a person with chronic fatigue who's eating nothing but French fries and ice cream and pizza and McDonald's could go into their doctor and the doctor wouldn't even suspect to, wouldn't even think to link their diet to the chronic fatigue, nor are they even trained to, uh, in nutrition to assess something like that. So yeah, at the end of the day, basically you're left with those four things, which is not of much help to most people with chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So when your diet is out of whack or when your diet is, you know, incorrect, are you saying that it does not show up in these tests that they were conducting? Uh, and it it seems normal, but then the issue might lie somewhere else. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Right, right. And, and so I know that you also pointed out to the role and significance of the mitochondria, right, in all of this. So could you give us an overview of what role the mitochondria plays when it comes to uh, chronic fatigue? Mm -hmm. So one of the first interesting things that happened when I sort of realized that nobody within conventional or, or, or conventional medicine or natural health uh, really understood chronic fatigue or knew how to fix it was the adrenal fatigue thing. And I actually mm -hmm. spent a year of my life, believe it or not, doing nothing but digging into the scientific literature around the topic of adrenal function, cortisol levels, and, uh, and, and chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, I could spend three hours talking only about this topic to you, but I'll summarize a year of my life in a few sentences. Okay. Uh, the, the basic gist of this theory for people who are not familiar with it is the idea that the adrenal glands, uh, which are a little gland that sits right on top of your kidney, produce this hormone called cortisol, which is very important in the stress response. All of that's true, and uh, and that while those this this cortisol response from the adrenals is appropriate in the context of an acute stress, with chronic stress, the adrenal glands essentially get burned out and exhausted, oh. and they don't produce enough cortisol, and that is sort of the primary physiological cause of the symptoms of chronic fatigue. Okay. So I spent, as I said, about a year of my life exploring the scientific literature, um, testing that hypothesis to see if that hypothesis is legitimate. And I, I was actually a proponent of it. I was a full believer in that adrenal fatigue um, story when I first started that, that process of exploring the literature. But by the end of it, what I had found, again, summarizing a year of my life very quickly, what I had found is that the story is nonsense and that the scientific mm -hmm. literature does not it, it does not support the notion that um, 
abnormal cortisol levels are uh, even present in the vast majority of people with chronic fatigue. And it doesn't even support the notion that any type of chronic stressor for any length of time reliably causes low cortisol levels as a result of adrenal burnout, meaning that adrenal fatigue, this supposed wearing out of the adrenals resulting in low cortisol due to chronic stress, doesn't even happen, and the literature doesn't support it. And in fact, there are, what I'm saying is not a controversial viewpoint, it is the consensus viewpoint within conventional medicine. And while I have lots to say that's critical of conventional medicine, they are absolutely right on their understanding of adrenal fatigue. There's a, a body that represents 14,000 endocrinologists. These are hormone specialists, MDs, and they literally, you can look this, this quote up online. I won't get it exactly right, but it's something to the effect of, there is no scientific evidence to support the idea that uh, physical or mental or other types of stressors wears out the adrenal glands resulting in low cortisol resulting in many common symptoms there is no scientific evidence to support that so we have mm -hmm. this weird this 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 very bizarre situation like th there's going to be people listening to this right now who are going to be mad at you for bringing me on your podcast saying who is this guy he doesn't know what he's talking about um, of course mm -hmm. adrenal fatigue is a real thing but mm -hmm. here's the deal i, I i'm of, of everybody on this planet I've, I've got to be in the top five people of all the 8 billion people in the world in terms of the amount of time studying the scientific literature on this topic. There's very few, if any, people that have spent more time immersed in that scientific literature. So right. you know, some guy who has read uh, an article or a book or watched a video of their favorite doctor talking about adrenal fatigue is not a trump card. I guarantee mm -hmm. I've spent about a thousand more hours on this topic than them. And the science, and I've documented it on my site, you can see it for free, and I've screenshotted every study in existence that has tested this. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the one hand, you have the conventional doctors who are saying there's no scientific evidence to support adrenal fatigue. This is pseudoscience. On the other hand, you have all these people in natural health, uh, holistic health, alternative medicine, functional medicine, who are saying, no, 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 adrenal fatigue really is a, th a thing. I test people's uh, adrenals and cortisol levels in my practice all the time. I see people with low cortisol levels, that's adrenal fatigue. Um, mm -hmm. Another digression if you wanted to go into why that happens, but um, it, that's an interesting you know, situation if you have all these supposed experts on two different yeah. sides who have totally opposite views of this thing. But in this case, the, peop the, the conventional medical doctors are correct in their assessment of the science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what you're saying makes sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, uh, typically they're looking for your uh, cortisol levels to sort of uh, find out if there's chronic fatigue or not, and that would make sense if it was acute, uh, acute uh, fatigue where your uh, cortisol levels would spike, but you're saying that because it's chronic in nature, your adrenals have become fatigued or tired, so they're not that you don't you don't notice those elevated or heightened levels of cortisol. So it becomes harder to diagnose. No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Um, okay. So I don't know how in the weeds you want to get on this topic, but if if mm -hmm. you want if you want to go deep on it um, here, yep. so. 
in general, people who are proponents of adrenal fatigue will um, argue for some kind of allostatic load model of understanding mm -hmm. of stress and how stress relates to the adrenals. Mm -hmm. Allostatic load is basically a fancy word for total body stress load from every type of stressor. So mm -hmm. this includes not only psychological stressors, but also um, metabolic stressors, also sleep deprivation, poor nutrition, exposure to toxins, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, here, here's the thing. There's a large body of evidence, thousands of studies that relate to that topic. And for every type of stressor that you can think of, whether you're talking mm -hmm. about psychological stress or many different types of psychological stress. For example, right. psychological stress from um, being poor, uh, psychological stress from having a job that you don't like, psychological stress from not having a job, psychological stress from a toxic relationship, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's studies that exist on those topics and cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. okay? There's also studies that exist on other types of stressors chronic stress from physical overtraining, for example, in athletes who are chronically over-exercising. There's yeah. study and cortisol levels. There's studies on um, toxins and other metabolic stressors. So um, chronic cigarette smoking, chronic alcohol consumption. There's studies that exist where they literally break down in groups um, People who are don't drink any alcohol, people who drink a little alcohol, people who are moderate alcohol consumers, people who are full-blown alcoholics, heavy alcohol consumers, um, and measure their cortisol levels and see the difference in cortisol levels. Um, mm -hmm. Same thing with cigarette smoking. All of those studies exist for every type of stressor you can imagine. And right. what that body of evidence of thousands of studies very clearly shows is there is no point with any amount of stress from any yeah. of those stressors that reliably results in low cortisol levels. In fact, what the, the trend is very consistently that people under any kind of extreme stress generally have, on average, slightly higher levels of cortisol, mm. even chronically. There is no point at which it switches and, right. and, and goes into adrenal burnout and results in low cortisol levels. Um, mm -hmm. So that model of things, which is built on a very old model, Hans Selye's model of physiology, um, it, is, it, just, it, simply, it simply doesn't hold up to the scientific literature. It does not mesh with the body of evidence we have on what chronic stress does to um, adrenal function and cortisol levels. Um, basically, what happens is chronic stress is like exercise um, mm -hmm. in the same way that uh, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, by the way. It's, it, it, chronic stress is definitely bad for you in many, many different ways. Um, right. But uh, what, what I mean by it's like exercise in the sense that um, in the way that doing exercise very frequently will build up a muscle, um, mm -hmm. you actually get adrenal hyperplasia due to chronic stress. And this has been shown in animal studies as well, where animals are subjected to chronic stress. The adrenal gland grows to be capable of producing more cortisol. Mm -hmm. it, there is no evidence for any point which it, adrenals burn out. Now, mm -hmm. there's a, another sort of topic that might apply to a small subset of people called um, learned helplessness. 
And mm -hmm. that, that applies to uh, like animal studies where animals are subjected basically to torture, um, where they're subjected to uh, like chronically being shocked, you know, that the, the floor of the cage that they're in just shocks them at random intervals mm -hmm. for no reason. And it's entirely out of their control. They will enter a state of severe depression and a state of, of learned helplessness, basically, where they won't even uh, attempt to um, improve their situation. They, they will stop feeling motivation to even attempt to do anything. They'll just accept the pain that's happening to them and the suffering. Mm -hmm. And, and there, there might be some sort of, uh, there, there might be a, an analogous human you know, state of physiology to that, but it's, it's a very small subset of people. And, and it is a unique state of physiology that occurs in that specific kind of context of just sort of suffering for no reason, even mm -hmm. being subjected to torture without any hope of um, improving your lot. Right. Right. And, and so like you implied before, you, you, you found out at certain point that there's some kind of connection between the mitochondria or the yeah. health of my of the mitochondria and chronic stress right so okay so, yeah sorry for the, the the long answer i feel that was that was um maybe important to understand how we yeah. ended up at mitochondria so in 2014 there was a, a paper put out that i think is one of the most important papers in modern medicine in the last hundred years and it was put out by a researcher at the university of california san diego who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine named Dr. Robert Navio. Mm -hmm. And the paper is called the cell danger response. Okay. In this paper, he set it, the, the, the paper is really centered around mitochondria and mitochondria are these things that we all learn about in high school and college biology courses. They are the, the powerhouse of the cell, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're, so they're framed in, in our biology courses as sort of just one of many different organelles. You know, over here, you have the endoplasmic reticulum, and here's the Golgi apparatus, and here's the nucleus, and here's a lysosome, and here's the mitochondria, right? And it's the powerhouse of the cell. You got to memorize that for when you take your test, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're sort of taught about, like I said, as just one of many parts of the cell and the, as these sort of mindless energy generators that basically take in carbs and fats and they pump yeah. out energy in the form of ATP. Yeah. But mitochondria are actually way more important than that. They, they are not just one of many, you know, things in the cell. Um, they, they are, in Dr. Robert Navio's words, the central hub of the wheel of metabolism. Metabolism is all of the biochemical processes that are happening in your body. Mitochondria are the central hub of that wheel. So this is a reframing of mitochondria, something much more important than just a mindless energy generator, one of many organelles. And he, th this paper also changed our way that we understand mitochondria from just being these mindless energy generators to actually understanding that they have an entire second role beyond their role in energy production that no one had really paid any attention to or understood until now. And that mm -hmm. role is as cellular defenders. So okay. it, it turns out that mitochondria have two roles, energy generation and cellular defense. They are actually 
not only they're, they're not mindless energy generators, they are actually exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors. And they are constantly sampling the environment of what's going on inside the cell, what's going on inside your body, and asking the question, this is very important, they're asking the question, is it safe for us to produce energy? Mm. Okay. So they're, they, and, and basically what that means is these roles of energy generator and cellular defender are two sides of the same coin. These are mutually mm. exclusive roles. And to the extent that they are picking up on danger signals, they're picking up on um, signals that, that say that the body is not safe, that it's under attack in some way or under threat, they are turning down the dial on energy production. Oh, okay. And this is, this is fundamentally, well, actually, before I say that, it is also important to understand that these, these canaries in the coal mine of your body, these mitochondria, these environmental sensors, can pick up on almost every type of stress that you can think of. From, okay. uh, in, from toxins, to uh, leaky gut, to psychological stress, to sleep deprivation, to anything else you can imagine. They can pick up on, uh, to a, like, let's say a virus, for example, they can pick up on the presence of that threat. And in response to it, they turn down energy production and shift resources towards cellular defense. They orchestrate that shift. They are, so while there are many, many different things that are in one way or another related to energy levels, you could talk about many different hormones like uh, testosterone and cortisol and melatonin and growth hormone and insulin and, you know, on and on and on. Um, thyroid hormone, you could talk about neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, and all and many different biochemical processes and mTOR and AMPK and, you know, you know, all these different processes that are in one way or another have some role in relationship to energy levels. Right. But the fundamental thing that is the most upstream that is actually controlling, regulating your energy levels, deciding whether or not Deciding whether you're going to have um, chronic fatigue or youthful abundant energy levels is your mitochondria, and they are deciding that in accordance with whether they are perceiving the environment as safe or dangerous. That is really, really interesting. Firstly, you said that this is just a 2014 study, right? So it's a fairly new sort of revelation or discovery, the fact that not only do are they the... Uh, sort of the production houses of energy, which, uh, you know, especially I also grew up, you know, um, grew up learning, but now they play this additional role also of sort of alerting and looking for dangers in the, in, in the environment and then taking measures accordingly, whether to upregulate or downregulate energy production. It almost feels as if it's like a nuclear reactor, right? That's creating a lot of energy and the role of that reactor is to produce energy. But then if you have some dangers in the environment, then they decide to, you know, reduce the energy mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, um, uh, put the alarm on or, or send the signal. So my question is, when this happens, do, uh, do, do the mitochondria automatically downregulate the energy or reduce the energy production or are they send, sending signals somewhere else to the body? This is a bit complex. There, there are mechanisms that, depending on the particular type of stressor, can actually directly cause the mitochondria to produce less energy. Um, An example 
is some types of uh, pathogens, of viruses, for example, actually hijack the mitochondria and use the energy being produced to serve their own purposes. So when the virus is present, it's basically stealing some of that energy from you. So less less energy is getting to you. It's one example. That's one way it can happen. Um, Another way it can happen is... um, you know, arguably one, one type of stressor is, is nutrient deficiencies. If you're not providing the nutrients necessary for mitochondria to function, um, they mm-hmm. will produce, they will function less effectively in their role in energy generation. There are also specific types of, of things like um, something called lipopolysaccharide is a good example of it. This is a type of toxin from bacteria in our gut that if you have gut permeability, which many people have, mm-hmm. That, yeah. that toxin will leak into your bloodstream and it directly damages mitochondria. So it actually causes physical damage to the mitochondria. So do many other oh, types okay. of toxins, like, for example, heavy metals like arsenic and mercury and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll also mention when mitochondria are under attack or damaged. And they start to engage the cell danger response. They start to shift out of energy mode into defense mode. There is a signaling cascade that takes place. There's actually many signaling cascades that take place. Um, but one of them that one of the things that happen, maybe this is a good way of visualizing it. When when you have um, when you're being attacked by let's say a, a viral pathogen, um, and that virus gets inside of cells, the cells and the mitochondria will actually start producing large amounts of free radicals. Free radicals okay. are reactive oxygen species. This is the opposite of antioxidants, right? Antioxidants mm-hmm. are meant to combat reactive yep. oxygen species or free radicals. And the mitochondria produce lots of free radicals actually as part of the, the innate immune system. It's, it's part yeah. of our immune function to do that. And that the, the huge production of those free radicals is designed to actually kill whatever's present in the cell. And, uh, and oftentimes, if depending on the severity of it, the whole, basically, the, it will destroy the cell, it will destroy the mitochondria and the cell itself. And uh, when that happens, you get a leakage outside of the cell of um, ATP of and ADP molecules, which are basically cellular energy molecules, the sort of molecules that, that mitochondria are using and producing. And when they leak outside of the cell into their environment and into the bloodstream, this is something called purinergic signaling. It turns out that other cells actually have receptors for those molecules and they're designed to detect when they're present. Um, present where they should not be, meaning those molecules are meant to be contained in inside of the cell. But when they're mm-hmm. leaking out of the cell, floating around freely in the bloodstream, other cells are now sensing the presence of that, and they are detecting it as a danger signal. Right. So c- cell damage in one small part of the body, whether it's from a physical injury and tissue, tissue damage, or whether it's from a viral infection or something like that, will actually cause this leakage and this cascade of signaling throughout the whole rest of the body, which signals to all those, those other mitochondria, turn down the dial on energy production, we're under attack, let's shift into defense mode. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the presence of these free radicals also trigger what is known as aging? Or is there in some way connected? Because you're now reducing the functioning and the effectiveness of the mitochondria. So how, how is aging connected with all of this? I'm just curious. Okay, so th th this is actually a, a super complex um, <laughs> answer to go into that. And okay. um, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I just want to sort of forewarn you that I will have a long answer. It's a very interesting topic. I'm happy to go into it if you want. Okay. But it, it's, yeah. more, it's more of a deep dive kind of thing because it's not actually just as simple as saying uh, free radicals drive aging. There's actually a long history within the aging research and longevity research community um, around this topic. There's yeah. um, something called Harman's free radical theory of aging. And okay. it was, I think it's almost 100 years old or 80 years old or something that he first put forward that basic idea. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the the idea was like, I think the, the origins of it was this guy, I, I forget his first name, but his last name was Harmon. And he was observing metal, metal rusting due to oxidation. Mm -hmm. And, you yeah. know, he basically thought something to the effect of, um, you know, what if that's happening inside of our cells, our cells are oxidizing due to these sort of, you know, free radicals being present. And, and that yeah. created this hypothesis, which was a dominant theory of aging for many decades. Um, within the scientific community researching that topic. And many, many, at least hundreds, if not thousands of studies have been done, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of studies have been done related to that topic. And at this point, you can go online, go on PubMed or Google Scholar. And if you look that topic up, you'll find papers like the free radical theory of aging is dead. Okay. okay. Um, and because many studies have actually debunked that basic theory, um, and they've shown there, there are studies that have shown that, um, for example, exposure to things, regular frequent exposure to things which cause higher levels of free radicals can actually paradoxically be associated with extended longevity. Hmm. Okay. As opposed to shorter lifespan. Now, yeah. the, in order to explain that, and I should also add there are studies where they have supplemented antioxidants, direct antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E, and shown that they do not extend lifespan and, okay. and, and in, in some cases actually shorten lifespan. So um, if you want to reconcile all of that and, and go into why those findings exist and talk about sort of what really drives aging. I'm happy to do that if you want to explore that deeply or feel free to take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of our listeners are curious about the topic of aging itself. Okay. Uh, we're finding new and new discoveries each and every day. And so it will be useful to at least point our listeners in the right direction in terms of what to read or what articles to search for so that they can have a more informed uh, understanding of, uh, of aging in the first place. Okay, great. So this relates to one of my biggest areas of interest uh, and okay. also very strongly relates to energy levels. So it's a, it's a kill two birds with one stone sort of thing. It's a, I'm going to present strategies that um, will in, both enhance your energy levels and um, extend your lifespan and, and help prevent many different diseases. Yeah. So the core concept to understand here is something called hormesis. And hormesis mm -hmm. is 
um, basically transient metabolic stress. And it's that we have a very negative association with this word stress. So don't let that throw you off. But transient metabolic stressors are actually the core of good health, longevity, and good energy levels. And it's a very, very overlooked topic that is not deeply understood. So let's we'll, we'll go into that, what's going on there. There's a, a, a book, if somebody's interested in going deep on this topic, specifically for anti-aging longevity purposes, there's actually a book called for a, a textbook, a clinical textbook meant for scientists and doctors uh, called Hormesis and Longevity. And mm -hmm. it's awesome. And it talks about, you know, compiles... Uh, thousands of studies related directly to what I'm about to tell you and related to what I just told you about antioxidants, not extending lifespan and this paradoxical effect of things which increase free radicals extending lifespan. So this story very much centers around mitochondria and within mitochondria and within the cell more broadly, there is something called redox balance. And this is basically the balance of the amount of oxidation taking place and the amount of reduction taking place, the amount of antioxidation. The cell likes to maintain balance and a, a, a certain level of balance between those things. And this yeah. is the fundamental mistake of the free radical theory of aging is it conceptualized things as basically free radicals bad antioxidants good. Mm -hmm. And the story is actually quite a bit more complex than that. Um, here's why. When, well, actually, this is probably a, a good entry point for understanding this. Um, about 15 or 20 years ago, there was a number of researchers um, all over the world that, that basically were looking at exercise, physical exercise. And they knew that we have all these studies, thousands of studies showing that exercise has all these benefits and protects against all these different diseases, um, protects against cardiovascular disease and neurological disease and cancer and da, 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 on and on and on. Yeah. And they said, but the, the, the problem with exercise is that it creates all these free radicals, mm. which it does. Okay? When yeah. you do exercise, you do create a big spike at the cellular level in terms of free radicals and in your blood. And so what if we could neutralize all those bad free radicals by taking antioxidants before and after exercise? And then we get all the benefits of exercise without the harm that we're causing from these free radicals. Right. And they did those studies and they found something that very much surprised them. They found, th they found out that using antioxidant supplementation um, very close to exercise, actually negated the metabolic benefits of exercise. Okay. Okay. It canceled out the benefits of exercise. Okay. So why is that? Well, it turns out that reactive oxygen species, free radicals at the cellular level and at the mitochondrial level, aren't just bad guys who are there to cause damage. They actually serve vital, important signaling roles at the mitochondrial level. Specifically, your mitochondria are, as your cellular energy generators, it is possible, let me put it this way, it's possible to have cells that either have very weak, shriveled up mitochondria and very few of them, 
or mm -hmm. cells that are filled with tons of mitochondria that are big, strong, and healthy. Okay, and you, you, it's a difference between, let's say, having 500 mitochondria per cell or 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 per cell. Okay, and that, that difference actually exists and it's been shown in studies. Um, specifically, there are studies showing that most people lose about 10% of their mitochondria with each uh, decade of life. The average 70-year-old has only about 25% of the mitochondrial capacity as a, as a young person, as a young adult. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is a digression, but it's not a natural product of aging. It's actually a product of lack of hormesis in the modern lifestyle. Okay. So, okay. so here's, here's, let me, let me sort of tie all of this together. So hormesis is this transient metabolic stress. Exercise is one type of hormesis, but there are many other types. Heat exposure like saunas, cold exposure like cold showers or ice baths or just walking around in cold temperatures, going in the ocean and surfing like, like I do. I was freezing my buns off the other morning. Um, and breath holding practices and also certain phytochemicals all stimulate these hormetic pathways. They increase reactive oxygen species. Sounds like a bad thing, except again, it's a vital signaling molecule that actually signals to the mitochondria, your cellular engine signals to the mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger. And it signals something called mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria, more mitochondria from scratch. Okay. The absence of those signals of those reactive oxygen species does the opposite. It causes mitochondria to shrink and atrophy True. and die off. Okay, in the same way that if you if you've ever broken an arm or a leg and you got a cast on it, eight weeks later you got that cast sawn off, and you look down at your arm or your leg, and it's half the size of the other one. All mm -hmm. of those muscle fibers atrophied from disuse because the body is merciless about getting rid of any energetically costly tissue that is not needed for survival. So if that happens in eight weeks. What happens over 50 years of mm -hmm. not adequately challenging and stimulating your mitochondria? Your mitochondria need to be challenged and stimulated in the same way a muscle does in order to maintain right. its, its robustness. So the, basically, the, the, um, if I can sort of tie all of this together, um, it turns out that whether you have weak, shriveled, atrophied mitochondria and very few of them, or lots of big, healthy, strong mitochondria and cells filled with tons of them, is, makes a massive difference in your ability to handle stress at the cellular level without incurring damage. Okay, So um, as an analogy, the, the mitochondria, you can think of them as the workers who are handling the stress load. So let's say you and I are in the same room right now, and we notice there's a building on fire to, 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 to the side of us. Is it easier for me to go put that fire out by myself with buckets of water or with your help or with your help and 10 other guys help, right? It's, it's going to be way easier, right? If we have a whole bunch of yeah. other people helping us. The same is true mm -hmm. at the cellular level, at the mitochondrial level, in terms of their ability to handle the stressors you're exposed to. If you have very few people helping out to handle that stress, very few mitochondria, they each have a much higher demand on them. 
And you, when you exceed the demand, when you exceed their capacity to handle that stress, you overwhelm their ability, their, their redox balance, their ability to handle the amount of oxidants that are present. And when that happens, you get what's called oxidative damage. And that means uh -huh. that the cell and the mitochondrial parts are physically being damaged because their capacity to handle that stress load was exceeded. The best way to prevent that is not antioxidant supplementation and avoidance of reactive oxygen species. The best way to prevent it is to build up that robust mitochondrial network to handle that demand. And mm -hmm. hormetic stress, through those different types of hormetic stressors that I mentioned, they not only build up your mitochondria physically bigger and stronger and create more of them, but they also build up what's called the ARE, the antioxidant response element. This is your internal cellular supply of internal um, endogenous antioxidants. And it's way more powerful than any um, exogenous antioxidant supplementation you might do. So the, the, the way, let me put it this way, if you want to have strong muscles, Mm -hmm. The goal is not to avoid exercise for fear that you're going to stress out the muscle tissue. If you do that, you're going to weaken and fragilize that muscle tissue. The goal is to, to systematically and progressively and regularly challenge it so that you either maintain its strength or make it stronger. The same is true at the mitochondrial level. If you want that internal antioxidant system to be strong at the cellular level so that whenever you are exposed to the stressors of life which we all inevitably are we're all exposed to psychological stress and toxins and all kinds of things um, they can handle that stress without incurring physical damage at the cellular level so again just to summarize the key is build up your mitochondria into a more robust system with hormetic stress. That way, your what the stressors of life don't actually cause the oxidative damage that drives aging. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks a lot for explaining that. That was really useful. And I can sense our listeners also getting a grip into how this works. I do want to speak a little bit more about uh, these hormetic stressors and what we can do, practices and uh, maybe routines that can really uh, maybe proliferate our mitochondria or maybe strengthen it as well. I want to ask you about, because you, you spoke uh, and you said that, uh, you know, these chemicals or maybe these heavy metals can, uh, you know, have influence on our mitochondrial health, right? So have you found anything about the quality of water that we consume? Or, yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. There, there's many many, many different compounds of concern in water. And I, yeah. I think up in Vancouver in Canada, you're, you probably have much better water than, uh, than we do in most of the, the United States. Um, mm -hmm. But it is a big concern. There are many contaminants. Um, there's chlorine and ammonia, and even much more of a concern than chlorine is chlorine disinfectant, dis disinfection byproducts. Okay. Um, and there's many different chemicals in that category of substances, and they are very toxic uh, to many different systems of the body, not just mitochondria. Um, and 
there's also there's many there's many different toxins. It's been a several years since I went deep on this topic, but um, yeah. there's also even in some water supplies, like for example in California, we get our our water supplies from Calif from the Colorado River, and yeah. there there are actually radioactive chemicals. There are small amounts of radioactive uh, compounds in in that water supply. Um, and there's, there's many other, uh, there's also pesticide residues. There's also even, uh, believe it or not, um, residues of pharmaceutical drugs from, okay. from people peeing and pooping out the residues yeah. of the drugs they're taking. And yeah. that ends up in the water supply. So okay. yes, there are many, many different compounds that absolutely tie into health from the water supply. And it is very necessary to either secure a good source of pure spring water or yep. have adequate filtration on your, uh, on your home water. And that means more than something like just a simple pitcher water filter like a Brita or more than your refrigerator water filter. Mm -hmm. So are these good or you need to go beyond that something even better than... A pitcher, like a Brita pitcher. The reason why I'm asking have, is because go I recently that. got yeah, beyond that. Okay, okay. Uh, and and do you have something to say about the PPM value of water? Because recently I got this uh, zero water, which I got from a recommendation who said that you know it literally clears out all the peep, you know particles dissolved in the water. Now one theory says that you know your water needs to be mineralized, right? Like you said, spring water is good for health. You can't just take out everything from the water. Uh, and on the other hand, you have something like this, which has everything taken off the good and the bad as well. And then maybe you can add something onto it. I, 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 there's many people who have talked about this issue and, right. um, but there's very little actual science to speak of as far as controlled okay. studies that have, have tested it. Um, yeah. I, I would be extremely skeptical of anybody trying to sell you on water that's been stripped of all mineral content. Because that's okay. what they're talking about. So PPM is parts per million, and right. um, you know there there are things dissolved in water. If if you look at mm -hmm. natural sources of water like glacial water or or spring water, um, yeah. you're you're going to find lots of things that are dissolved in there: minerals, calcium, magnesium, lots and lots of other trace minerals. Mm -hmm. um, I think running it through a process like, for example, distillation, where you remove virtually all of those compounds and then drinking yeah. basically distilled water it's it's not it's not like a unique modern technology to create water like that it's distilled water and uh drinking distilled water on an ongoing basis is likely to actually strip minerals from your body i think while there's no actual controlled studies testing this i i do agree that this is plausible and almost certainly what is happening uh, that yeah. it is likely to strip minerals from your body and not be compatible with good health. So if you, I mean, distillation is actually a pretty good filtration method because it removes almost everything and it removes almost every type of contaminant too. Yeah. Um, however, you do have to remineralize that water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I'm looking into as well. And this is the preliminary research that I'm doing in, into water. I'm taking it step by step. And so right now I'm trying to get more and more information about, you know, the water that I'm consuming. But uh, yeah, that, that points me in the right direction. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Ari, is um, red light therapy. 
I've read a lot about it, especially recently, and I think that it's sort of exploded uh, most recently when more people are getting to know about peer-reviewed studies about the benefits of red light therapy and all the benefits that come along with it. And you also have written a book on, on, on this subject, right? So could you give us an overview of how red light can really uh, influence the mitochondria? Sure. Right? And, and, and have these profound benefits whether it's our skin or you know cellular regeneration or even healing and all these different things. Yeah, actually, so red and near-infrared light are actually another type of hormetic stress. Yeah. And so they fit in to the category of everything I was just uh, discussing. They, they have other unique effects. Every type of hormetic stressor has its own sort of unique fingerprint of specific okay. adaptations that it's stimulating in your body. And that's certainly true of, of red and near-infrared light. So yeah, I've, I've written uh, what's pretty much regarded as the book on the topic. Um, there were textbook, clinical textbooks um, written by researchers and, and experts like, like Harvard's Michael Hamblin, who's done, done hundreds of studies on this topic and who's been a prolific researcher on this topic. Um, but there was nothing meant for a lay audience. So I was basically the, the, the first guy to really compile all these thousands of studies and put them together in an understandable way uh, for, for, for the general public, along with specific practical guidance on how to actually use these lights. I'm actually in the process mm -hmm. of updating and creating a version 2.0 of that book um, as we speak with a lot of a lot of the latest lab data, actual third-party lab data from all these red light device manufacturers to sort out a lot of the sort of um, crappy practices in the industry and people making uh, claims that are not legitimate. Um, right. uh, manufacturers of light devices, I mean. Um, so there are thousands of studies on red light therapy showing benefits for many, many different conditions. Um, everything from skin anti-aging to fat loss to enhancing recovery from exercise uh, to um, enhancing the adaptations to exercise, like when you pair it with exercise, increasing um, uh, endurance benefits, uh, endurance adaptations, or strength and muscle growth adaptations. Um, improvements in brain health, combating neurological disease, combating depression, uh, improving wound healing um, in, in all sorts of contexts. Um, there's there's hundreds of studies just on, for example, oral mucositis, which is a side effect of chemotherapy drugs, and using red light therapy in the mouth to combat the oh. very painful side effect of, of uh, chemotherapy. Just to give you a sense, you know, and there's dozens or hundreds of studies just on using it to treat diabetic ulcers. There's hundreds of studies in the context of enhancing athletic performance and recovery from exercise. Dozens of studies on fat loss, dozens of studies on brain health, on and on and on. It almost, when I, when I say that list of all these different things, it almost sounds like snake oil. You know, how could something, mm -hmm. how could something, one therapy, treat yeah. so many different things, benefit so many different things? And the answer is fundamentally because it revolves around mitochondria. And virtually all of the energy produced by virtually all of the trillions of cells of your body, from your skin cells, to your muscle cells, to your brain cells, to your liver cells, to your heart cells, pretty much everything, virtually all of that energy comes from mitochondria. And 
the, those cells and therefore those organs do their job better when the mitochondria are producing more energy. Yeah. So whether it's a brain cell or a heart cell or a thyroid gland cell or testicular cells that are producing sperm and testosterone, they all work yep. better when the mitochondria are working better to supply more energy to the cell. More energy to the cell means the functions of that cell get done better. And that's fundamentally why this thing can sort of have these universal panacea-like effects. It's, it's not a panacea, it doesn't, it doesn't cure all disease by any means, mm -hmm. but yeah. um, it does benefit almost every type of, of condition you can think up. And mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is absolutely a remarkable therapy. In addition to stimulating uh, mitochondria to become uh, stronger and, and capable of producing more energy as a result of the hormetic aspect of it, creating a transient spike in free radicals like other types of uh, hormetic stressors, it, it also actually stimulates, it, part of its unique effect is to stimulate an increase in growth factors. And okay. th these are, these are uh, compound signaling molecules that we have that are unique to different tissues. So for example, um, in the brain, we have growth factors like nerve growth factor, NGF, or BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. In the muscle, we have IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. We have other specific growth factors in other tissues of the body, in the bone, in the skin. It stimulates collagen, you know, fibroblast production of collagen. And so it's basically, it is stimulating cellular growth and regeneration. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and that is, this is actually a process, um, it's called retrograde signaling. It's actually modifying gene expression at the nucleus okay. of the cell, which genes get turned off and which genes get turned off. It turns off a, a lot of genes or, or turns down the dial on many genes involved with, for example, um, chronic inflammation, like the NF-kappa-B pathway. Chronic inflammation gets suppressed. Growth factors involved in cellular healing and regeneration get boosted. And that's an effect that actually lasts several days after the exposure to red light therapy. So um, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool with over uh, 6,000 studies, I believe, at this point. Um, to support its benefits in, in all kinds of things from, you know, like I said, brain health uh, and, and skin anti-aging and fat loss and recovery from exercise and um, wound healing and, and you know, y you, many, many other uh, benefits. Yeah, I've been meaning to get a red light uh, panel for myself as well. And as you probably know, there's such a wide variety of what is offered, right? You have the more portable ones that you can, you know, have in your hand and you just face it right your, your face. And then you have the larger panels, which I'm guessing, especially for athletes and high performance trainers, it's to, you know, to, to um, shed the light or to focus the light on the entire, uh, you know, part of the body. Maybe it's a chest or maybe it's the thigh or maybe it's the leg. So those I'm guessing are more advanced sort of uh, devices um, for, for different purposes and different applications. Yeah. You know, in general, I would recommend most people to, if they can afford it, get a full body device. In many cases, okay. a, a half body device that will cover just your torso or it's the length of your legs maybe um, okay. is perfectly adequate. But if you can afford it, go for a full body. There's other devices that are, you know, there's everything from a maybe $400 device that's a good device that I'd recommend 
to, yeah. to devices that are many tens of thousands of dollars. You know, you can get as sort of fancy and expensive as you want to get. Um, yep. But, you know, like tanning bed style setups, that yeah. devices that cost $100,000. Right. Um, and I'm not kidding about that. <laughs> Literally a hundred thousand um, yeah. dollars. you know, so, um, you, in my opinion, you, you don't really need to go beyond maybe, I would argue maybe even like $1,200 to get sort of okay. the full benefits. Um, mm -hmm. anything beyond that is sort of, uh, a vanity purchase, you know, you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. Interesting. Thanks a lot for that advice. And I've seen definitely those beds, right, which open and you you sort of lie down and then it closes, um, which I'm sure are have their value. And, you know, I know they're expensive, but I'm guessing they have a lot of value as well. I wanted to ask you, you've done some study as well as personal practice into sun gazing, right? Especially in the morning. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Like the benefits that you've seen of sun gazing? Um, and how how it can help us? Okay, so this is a this is an interesting topic um, in the sense that you know there's there's a whole sort of esoteric aspect to this, and you know in in different schools of sort of spiritual thought and yogic traditions, and um, there are sun gazing practices that are sort of meant you know, and there, there's all sorts of very mystical sort of supernatural explanations of what's happening. Um, I, I won't discount that as nonsense, but it's also something I can't really speak to from a scientific perspective as to whether it's right. legitimate or not. Um, I personally practice sun gazing in the, the morning and in the evening as the sun's going down. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, as a science guy, I have to sort of stick with the science, but I will say that I do think that there is some, some some magical or mystical aspect to okay. that practice. Um, there's some magic to it. Now, part of the, the benefits of interacting with the sun, a large part of it has to do with the circadian rhythm. This is the biological clock in our body. We have a, a biological clock in the brain and part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it is literally a 24-hour biological clock. This is the reason that every night through no volition of your own, you enter an entirely different state of consciousness for eight hours. And then the yeah. next morning, again, through no volition of your own, you enter <laughs> waking consciousness for, for the day. Yeah. This is the clock that is controlling that. And it's controlling it by regulating uh, uh, many different hormones and neurotransmitters that are literally so powerful, they're controlling your state of consciousness. And they're yep. also doing many, many other things like affecting your energy levels, your mood, um, your libido, many different hormones are, are tied into the circadian rhythm. So um, testosterone, thyroid hormone, cortisol, melatonin, growth hormone, um, all of these, in order for them to work optimally, your circadian rhythm has to be getting the right inputs. And the the primary they use a german word in the scientific literature it's called zeitgeber i don't know why they chose to use this very strange word but mm -hmm. it means um environmental input or factor that yeah regulates the circadian clock in the brain and the primary one that regulates the circadian clock in the brain is um is light now a quick digression we actually have 
a big focus of my new book, Eat for Energy, is actually we have peripheral clocks that have been, this is a more recent scientific discovery, but we have peripheral circadian clocks in almost all the tissues of our body, from mm -hmm. skin to our heart cells, to our liver cells, to our intestinal cells, to our muscle cells, and so on. And the primary Zeitgeber that controls those circadian clocks and whether they're operating well or not is actually food inputs, nutrition. Okay. Okay. Central clock in the brain, primarily responsive to light. Peripheral clocks, primarily responsive to food. And if we want the whole system to be optimized, we want to synchronize the two. So there needs to be a synchronization between light inputs and food inputs. Right. Now, um, the primary inputs for the central clock in the brain to work properly is light. And specifically, you want to have ample bright lights, ideally sunlight, entering your eyes in the morning hours within half an hour of waking up, okay. an hour at the most. And it doesn't have to be staring at the sun, but I prefer staring at the sun in those more, it, you know, it has to be very early if you're doing that, not, you know, 10 a.m. or something. Um, yeah. But as, especially as the sun is rising or within the first hour, or maybe two of the day, um, you want that sunlight, the photons of that light to enter your eyeballs where they hit receptors in your eyes and feedback through nerves into the brain directly into that suprachiasmatic nucleus where the circadian clock is. Okay. And that is the signal to that part of the brain. It's daytime, the time to be awake, alert, active, and energetic. Okay. The absence of that signal is the absence of those photons, specifically blue light photons in particular, but also to some extent green light and UV light also interacts with this as well. Mm -hmm. um, the absence of those parts of the color spectrum of light hitting those photons is the cue, oh, it's darkness, it's nighttime, it's the time for rest, relaxation, and sleep. Okay, and mm -hmm. those, the combination of those two inputs is what controls all those things I mentioned, your, your sleep and wake cycles, your state of consciousness, your energy, your mood, all these different hormones and neurotransmitters. Um, it is also this system that gets disrupted if you travel to a new time zone halfway around the world oh. and you have jet lag. Okay. Yeah. What, what jet lag is, is the disruption of this circadian clock and all these different hormones and neurotransmitters that I just described. That's, that's what causes jet lag. Mm -hmm. So, um, we want this system to be optimized. Now in the modern world, we have a couple of fundamental problems. One is that, um, most of us live indoor lifestyles and we're not getting nearly the amount or the right timing of outdoor light. We should be getting that morning bright light in our eyes to start the day for at least 10 minutes. And we should also be getting ample bright light exposure throughout the day, um, during the daytime period. And then at night, um, we should be getting much, much less light in our eyes. And we should be getting the signal into that, into that part of the brain. It's the darkness is here, the absence of blue light, is here, um, so it's it's time to go into relaxation and sleep mode. The problem is in the modern world, we have electricity and light bulbs and TV screens and computer screens and cell phones and lights on cars and street lights and all these different sources of light that completely disrupt that system. Mm -hmm. So the, the bigger the differential between 
daytime light exposure feeding into your eyeballs through nerves into the circadian clock versus the nighttime amount of light photons of those wavelengths that are doing that is critical for that circadian clock to work well. Now imagine that someone wakes up and they're indoors in their house and in their office and in their workplace, and they have almost no outdoor time throughout the day. And they don't start their day with bright light outdoors. They, they have very little during the day. They're in indoor, um, man, you know, artificially lit environments. And it's, it's critically important to understand that indoor environments are um, about 100 to 1,000 fold less, or sort of, I should say, one one hundredth to one one thousandth of, of the uh, light intensity of outdoor environments. So you're getting way less intensity of light. Now in the evening, whereas if you were an ancestral human living outdoors most of the day, you now the sun went down and now there's a massive differential in the amount of light entering your eyes and right. also a differential in the wavelengths of light, the colors of light entering your eyes. The blue light, the blue sky goes away and now you have firelight. And firelight is predominantly orange and red. Oh, okay. okay, and those orange and red wavelengths don't send a signal to the brain. It's daytime, the time to be awake, alert, active, energetic. In fact, red light actually enhances melatonin production and, and helps the signal and reinforce the circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. So um, the ancestral human has this much, you know, very, very high levels of light exposure, lots of light exposure at a very high intensity for most of the day. And then it drops massively in the evening. The modern human has this, you know, look pretty low, moderate light exposure during most of the day. And then at night, after the sun goes down, we're still in the indoor environments that are being lit by light bulbs and at a similar light intensity to what we were at during the daytime period. So there's very little differential. This creates basically a subtle chronic form of essentially jet lag, chronic circadian rhythm, circadian clock disruption. And therefore, all of the different hormones and neurotransmitters that are tied into that cir circadian clock and regulated by it are suffering chronically as a result of the circadian clock not getting the proper inputs that it needs. Um, to tie this back to, to sun gazing, I, I've sort of already alluded to the morning period of the sun exposure, critical to send that early morning signal to the, to the circadian clock. It's time to be awake, alert, active, energetic. That's setting, that's, that's the key signal it needs to function well. And then in the evening, uh, I won't get too complex here, but actually the, the color of the sun shifts depend, you know, from midday to the color that it is, um, at, at the, uh, you know, sunset hours. Yeah. And this has to do with the, the distance that the sun is away from us and how much of the atmosphere it's, the, the, the light is being filtered through, but it becomes more reddish in the evening. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of the UV light disappears from it. And, um, the, the UV and the blue light start to get toned way down and then it becomes a much more reddish light. And that light, like red light therapy, has certain healing effects and probably also, though there's no science to support this as of now, uh, it hasn't been tested, probably also ties in to the circadian clock in some way to see the sun sort of going down 
it, it would make sense that 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 would be you know interpreted as a result of millions of years of evolution that we would have been wired to have that be some kind of circadian signal that reinforces that it's it's heading into the nighttime period that is that is some really useful information i mean intuitively we all know that uh, we enjoy you know going for a trek and enjoying the sunrise and we also enjoy sitting on the beach and maybe enjoying the sunset where like you pointed out the uh, sun is not that intense there uh, less of the blues and and violets and it's more crimsony and and, and more relaxing compared to the afternoon mm-hmm. heat of the sun and the and the sunshine uh, my question is what of what about people who do not get to see so much of sunshine like places like California or Florida, maybe people like in Vancouver or maybe beyond where there's uh, more cloudiness and there's more rain. Are there any other uh, hacks per se that one can artificially recl- you know, replicate that morning gazing, especially in the midst of, in the absence of that sunshine? Because Vancouver does get sunshine, but it gets about three to four months of nice summer sunshine, and then it becomes rain or a lot of clouds. Right. Yeah. So the Pacific Northwest is actually known for something called seasonal affective disorder. Yeah. A- and And this is essentially depression due to lack of light getting into the brain, uh, into mm-hmm. the circadian clock. So um, it is a sort of circadian dysregulation. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it does have an easy fix, an easy hack, which is to use uh, what's sometime call, sometimes called a happy lamp, but bright light therapy, um, distinct from red light therapy or UV light therapy. Bright light therapy predominantly is, is usually blue LEDs or white LEDs. White light is a mix of the different colors of the spectrum, but it's heavy on the blue part of the spectrum. And um, just as we want to minimize blue light in the evening before bed, we want to have actually lots of blue light entering our eyes in the first part of the day, ideally through sunlight. But if you can't do that, then you get yourself spend 50 or 100 bucks. You get yourself one of these 10,000 lux. That's a measure of the light intensity output. Um, 10,000 lux um, LED systems with white light. And you use it for 10 or 20 minutes in the morning within half an hour of waking up. And it's an easy hack for people who live in climates like yours. Amazing, amazing. And uh, firstly, Ari, thanks a lot for sharing all of this that you have shared so far. I'm sure it makes for a lot of fodder as well as insights into what people can now search online and offline and sort of educate themselves in these areas, which are so important, especially because like you pointed out, these are new re- research and new findings that, that you've been uncovering. Uh, as we sort of close down, I want to talk a little bit about heat shock proteins and saunas. Like how, you know, what what role do they play? I'm a big fan of saunas myself, uh, but maybe for somebody who has been thinking about saunas, uh, how, how do they act as hormetic stressors to then, you know, strengthen and improve the overall health and uh, of our mitochondria? Yeah. Um, heat shock proteins are, are, are one of many molecules that are involved in, um, the hormetic response. There's, there's, sort okay. of, there's, there's many different aspects that you could talk about. So you could talk about heat shock proteins. You could talk about the NRF2 pathway, which, you know, interacts with the keep protein, frees this NRF2 up, which goes inside the cell. And that ultimately signals to the ARE, the antioxidant response element, to grow bigger and stronger. Um, We could talk about something called PGC1-alpha, 
um, which is the primary stimulator, the mechanism by which it stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, there, there's many, many different aspects at a biochemical level of what's going on physiologically in response to hormetic stress. I think rather than getting bogged down in you know specific biochemistry, it maybe would be more interesting to talk about some of the research around saunas and benefits. Um, there, yep. there is amazing research around sauna use. Um, I tell people that if the same research that exists for sauna use and yep. with the, what benefits it shows, if it existed for a pharmaceutical drug, mm -hmm. the whole world would be going crazy for it. And ev yeah. every doctor would be prescribing it to every person and if you weren't on this drug, you, doctors would look at you like you're, you're a crazy person. Why, why would you not take this? I mean, the benefits are amazing, and it has virtually no downsides other than the discomfort and the time it takes to do it. Um, but to speak specifically about some of those benefits, there's, there's research um, on cardiovascular disease prevention showing that the more you use a sauna and the longer the duration of the sauna use, the more you suppress the likelihood of cardiovascular disease, um, up to 55 or 60% reductions in your risk of cardiovascular disease, um, stroke and heart attacks and things like that. I mean, a massive reduction. Um, yep. You can talk about research on depression showing massive benefits to people who are depressed and one single sauna exposure might last weeks in terms of elevated mood. Um, there are studies on um, enhancing athletic performance and endurance. There's studies on enhancing um, muscle growth. There's studies on enhancing recovery. Um, there's studies on detoxification. There's um, studies on neurological disease showing 65% reductions uh, in, in risk of dementia and Alzheimer's associated with people who use a sauna more frequently, massive effects. Um, and there's even research on all cause mortality. This is the most important metric. It's your risk of dying from any cause period. doesn't matter what cause. Okay. And, okay. Uh, um, and there is a clear and massive reduction in the neighborhood of 60 some percent, uh, for frequent use of saunas compared to I believe the group they compared it to was using a sauna only once per week. They didn't even compare it to uh, people oh. using it zero times per week. But um, yeah, we're talking about you know very very widespread, very clear systemic benefits for many different aspects of physiology, as well as enhanced longevity and and um, decreased risk of various diseases. So. Um, mm -hmm. Plus, it is a hormetic stressor that is stimulating mitochondria in the ways that I've described to grow bigger and stronger and become more yeah. robust, stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of more, mitochondria, uh, more mitochondria from scratch, and yeah. building up that ARE, the antioxidant response element, which is making you more resistant to a broad range of really any type of stressor that might damage your mitochondria and cells and drive aging and disease. So. Um, saunas are a, a wonderful tool that I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, in that sense, I think we uh, have a lot of lot to feel grateful for uh, for the Scandinavian people, right? Because they yeah. have a lot of saunas going there, but they also love extreme cold exposure. They just uh, you dig a hole in the ice and jump 
right through it, um, both of which I love. Uh, now, in my community center, you have a traditional sauna, right? You enter the room, it's intense, it's hot, it's dry. And then in my gym, you've got more like a IR sauna. And I felt when sitting into there, I was like, it's not that hot, uh-huh. uh, right? And then I re- read more research and then I found out it isn't supposed to be right that hard because of the IR nature of it. But what are your thoughts, traditional or IR? I have some controversial thoughts on this topic, um, but I'm right. <laughs> I will say that, that I'm right. Um, there's not a lot of people that I've heard talk about this issue. And um, okay. almost everybody that I have heard that is talking about it is talking about it just parent, parroting what other people are saying. Almost nobody has actually looked at the scientific literature. So mm. here, here's the, 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 the most important distinction. Um, well, a couple things first. Many of the claims that have been built around infrared saunas are claims that were essentially marketing claims by the companies mm-hmm. making infrared saunas. And then those claims get kept getting repeated and repeated and repeated to yep. the extent where many people started parroting them and repeating them as if they're fact. But many of these claims are not fact. So first of all, the, there, there is a claim that well, oh yeah, infrared saunas don't have to be as hot um, because yeah. they're heating you up from the inside. The infrared rays are penetrating, you know, really deep inside your body, heating you up from the inside, and therefore um, the room doesn't have to be as hot. And actually, it's superior because you get even more benefits that way. Um, right. And they'll make claims like uh, I've seen things like, oh, um, the sweat that results from infrared saunas is 20 times richer in toxins um, mm. than, than the sweat you'd get in a regular sauna or from exercise um, because these infrared rays are penetrating so deep in your body and therefore loosening up all these toxins and getting, you know, getting the toxins out from the inside. All of that is nonsense and has absolutely zero science to back it up. Um, and in fact, the infrared rays do not penetrate deeply into your body. They are very much absorbed on the surface at the level of the skin and the water in the level just below the skin surface or within the layers of the skin. Um, This idea that they're sort of penetrating very deep into your body is absolutely wrong. Red and near-infrared light actually has the capacity to penetrate deep in your body, inches deep in your body, Um, but it's the only type of light that does that. The type of light that's in infrared saunas, the type of infrared um, radiation is um, the, absorbed very much on the surface by water, skin and water. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that those claims are nonsense. The other most important distinction is virtually all, I would say at least 90% of the research that's been done on the health benefits of saunas. For example, all those studies that I was just referring to have been done in the context of traditional saunas, not infrared saunas. So for infrared sauna companies to come along and basically take all of that research that was done in traditional saunas and then say that it applies to their saunas is, from a scientific perspective, a big no-no. And um, particularly because there is a big distinction in the temperatures most infrared yeah. saunas are maybe 150 degrees, whereas traditional saunas can get above 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a big difference. 
And um, it's a big enough difference that for me personally, um, I can go in an infrared sauna and sit in there for hours and never really feel terribly uncomfortable. Where mm -hmm. I can go in a 220 degree traditional sauna and I can be really uncomfortable in 10 minutes. And That's I true. absolutely need to get out in 15 or 20 minutes, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now if you, if you understand you know, what, the, in, what the, the infrared sauna companies have done, the marketers have done, is to try to claim that the benefits of sauna exposure are largely the result of sweating and detoxification. And while there's certainly some aspect of truth in that, um, it is, in my opinion, much more likely that the majority of the benefits that we see as far as reductions in disease and things of that nature are coming from heat hormesis, from hormetic stress as a result of heating up your body to the point of discomfort. So if you sit in a comfortable chamber where you're not dis uncomfortable, that never mm -hmm. overheats you to that point, but you're sweating, is right. it the same as going into a much hotter chamber that gets your body much hotter and that takes you to the point of heat discomfort? No. Mm -hmm. If it's studied, and it hasn't been thoroughly studied yet, but if it is, you're going to see for certain massive difference in levels of things like heat shock proteins. And I would bet lots of other aspects of the signaling cascade, PGC1-alpha, that signals for mitochondrial mitogenesis and many, many other compounds. Um, so they're not the same. And in general, given that most of the research is on traditional saunas, I am generally speaking a bigger fan of traditional saunas. However, the one um, nuance to this is I would say that for basically the younger and fitter and healthier you are, the more I would lean in the direction of traditional saunas, the older and sicker you are, if you're 75 years old with, with severe chronic illness, I would actually encourage people to go in the direction of infrared saunas because they're gentler and they will still allow you to get, they will still take you to your heat tolerance and they'll be gentler and still allow you to sweat in a more comfortable way without the harshness of a traditional sauna at high temperatures. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, definitely provides at least me some some confirmation and 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 uh, and uh, some more knowledge about about my experiences in both the IR saunas as well as the traditional saunas. Uh, what lies ahead for you in 2022, and how can somebody listening to the show learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you for asking. So. Um... I have lots of projects in the works always. Um, I'm already working on my next book, but um, my new book just came out uh, a month ago. It's called Eat for Energy, How to mm -hmm. Beat Fatigue and Supercharge Your Mitochondria for All-Day Energy. And it's basically the distillation of everything I know about nutrition science uh, to optimize mitochondria and energy production. So I would strongly encourage people to go on Amazon and grab that book. Um, it's packed. It's not fluff. It's not some crazy one size fits all dogmatic extreme diet. It's a, mm -hmm. a set, a flexible and dynamic set of really simple and easy to implement nutritional strategies to take your energy to new heights. So I, I definitely encourage people to go check that out. 
amazing. We'll have all these links up in the show notes as well. Action Tribe, I hope you enjoyed this particular uh, session. I'm sure that we could have gone for hours and hours together, but everything that you need more in terms of you know, information as well as the research behind this, as well as actionable steps that you can take in your life will be available in the book. I'm going to add the link also in the show notes to so make sure you get it. If you like this session, then make sure you write us an iTunes rating and review because that really helps us grow. Maybe tell a friend about this episode so that we can help spread the word. Ari, thank you so much for coming on our show, talking to us about the hidden role and the emerging role that we're learning about the mitochondria and how each of us has the ability to lead a more healthy, energetic, and electrifying life. Mm. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the, the conversation and thanks for asking such great questions. Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at my7chakras.com. That is my S-E-V-E-N, chakras.com.